does God call and does God predestine? Yes. Do you have free will? Yes. Does it make sense from an eternal perspective? Yes, maybe not in our minds, but when God calls, in order to connect, you got to answer. So we are in our series in Romans. We've been going through the book of Romans. Tonight, we are in chapter 9. So what I want to tell you about this as we get into it is chapters 9 through 11 are Paul directly dealing with the people of Israel and some of the confusion in their attitude about God's election. Because God had elected and chosen the nation of Israel through Abraham, to be the shining light to the world, to hold on to the word of God, to prepare it and hold on to it and keep it and copy it, the law and the prophets and the history of God's work in this world has been held through the nation of Israel. Um, and as such, they were God's chosen and are God's chosen nation. And their confusion about what that means is what Paul is dealing with. There's an attitude that's a problem. And then, of course, as we get further into chapter 11, we find out the resolution ultimately that's going to come of that. And so this is pretty particular. Now, this isn't the first time that God has dealt with, or that Paul has dealt with the history of Israel in the book of Romans, and we'll get into some of that. But it's also a particular chapter that provides some challenging interpretation because there are lots of different interpretations and views of this chapter. This is one of the problems with modern-day Christianity or with the variety of denominations, is that we have this tendency to isolate a section of Scripture and remove it from everything else so that we can interpret it the way we want to interpret it, uh, which we're going to try to not do. So what we're going to deal with tonight are... Tough questions and unsatisfying answers. So by the end of tonight, as we get through chapter 9, I promise none of you will be satisfied. You are welcome. You might not like the answer that you get, but I hope it at least makes sense. So let's dig into it. I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscious also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. This is Paul speaking, saying, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brothers, my countrymen. This is Paul basically saying, all of my people, Paul as a Jew, as a former Pharisee before he became a Christ follower, looking at his people, the people he cared for, people he belongs to, denying the truth of Christ, and he wishes he could take their punishment for them. He wishes he could give them heaven in return for him. The problem is that Paul, as he has already gone through, is also a sinner. So he's unequipped to take their punishment and give them grace. Only Jesus is capable of doing that, and their lack of faith in Jesus grieves Paul. And so he has these people that he desires to see come to Christ, and they're just not getting it, the attitude and heart of the first century Jews. 
and it's bothering him. Now, tough questions, unsatisfying answers. This reminds me of, well, I have two children now, and I have been a child my whole life. So, so have you. You're welcome. What, one of the things I've always found unsatisfying is when a parent says to do something, and then a great question is asked when the child says, why? And a very unsatisfying answer is when the parent says, because I said so. And it might not be a satisfying answer, but it's true because the parent is the authority. And while it might be unsatisfying, it's definitely true. And so we're going to find out a tough question and an unsatisfying answer. This is Paul's grief. Those who are of God's chosen nation, but don't believe. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ, and who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. He's saying, these are my people. They've been, they've been given the covenants. They've been given the law, the service of God, the ministry of God. They're supposed to be a light to the other nations. This is the promised nation, and they just don't get it. Now we pick up in verse 6, which is where we left off last week. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come to Sarah, and you will have a son." And so Paul is getting to the point where he says, look, just because you are the seed of Abraham doesn't give you any salvation. In fact, this is again a time he goes back to Abraham and says, not all of the children of Abraham were the chosen. Remember Ishmael? Isaac was the chosen one. And even further down the line, Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, Jacob was the chosen one, not Esau. And in both instances, God went against the grain and against the culture, where the culture would have said the older son receives the prize. They receive the inheritance, the double blessing. And God goes in the opposite direction and gives both to the younger, and he goes against the culture, and not every seed of Abraham is the chosen one. And so even very... From the very start, the person you look up to most, the father of the faith, Abraham, not even all of his children are of the elect. This is where Paul is going. He says, not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, nor the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. 
And so even before they did anything, before they were even born, God chose Jacob over Esau. And now you have this penetrating question that comes through in Romans 9. This idea of election and predestination. And does God choose who's saved before the foundations of the earth? Is he making people choose to be saved? How much of it is free will? How much of it is predestination? How much of it is, in theological terms, Calvinism or Arminianism or something else? What is going on here? God's sovereignty, he knew you when you were being knitted together in your mother's womb. He chose Jacob over Esau before they were even born. How much does God have sovereignty over things in terms of salvation? This is the difficult question that we're going to be dealing with today. And I promise you, you'll be unsatisfied. Because I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what's in here. It says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Basically saying, you have no right to ask God whether or not he's right or wrong. God is right or wrong because he's God. Whatever he does is right because he's God. He's just. And so you don't have to ask him whether people deserve mercy or compassion or justice. God chooses, and what he chooses is righteous because he's God. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom, and, and whom he hardens. You will say at me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed to say, uh, say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? So he's saying, God can do what he wants. He is God. The hammer doesn't say to the carpenter, how dare you make me hit that nail? The hammer's the tool. The carpenter's the creator, the craftsman. God is the creator. The creation doesn't get to ask the creator what he decides to create or how he works in his creation. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people there. They shall be called sons of the living God. What is Paul doing? He's really getting to the heart of the matter. So when we look at this and we look at Romans 9 and these first 25 verses in isolation and you remove it from context, 
and you remove it from the rest of the book of Romans, and you remove it from the rest of Scripture, you get this picture of God as this sovereign king who creates people with his own decision to whom he's going to save and whom he's not going to save, and he gets to do whatever he wants. The problem is that's not what Romans 9 is really saying, and that's not the argument that's being made. Paul is talking to a specific audience with a specific attitude. He's talking to a Jewish audience who didn't understand why the gospel was being spread to the Gentiles. They thought because of their own birthright being Jews that they were the ones whom God has chosen. And so who is Paul or who is the church to actually try to bring the Gentiles in to worship Yahweh? They didn't understand what was going on. And Paul is stating to them, hey, just because of your birthright doesn't mean that you're saved. Yes, you're part of the chosen nation to present God to the world, but that doesn't mean you individually are saved. Just like someone who's a Gentile doesn't mean that they're not saved. God can save whomever believes in him. God is going to make that choice himself. And so he's trying to get past this attitude of, because I was born a Jew, I'm okay. No, you have to have faith in Jesus. And just because you were born a Gentile doesn't mean you can't get in, because the truth is the gospel is for everyone. And so while it sounds like Paul is narrowing the gospel and making it smaller to only the small select few, what Paul is really doing is expanding the gospel and saying to these people who are closed-minded that the gospel is for everyone, not just the Jew. God is the God of all men, not just the God of Israel. Yes, Israel is a chosen nation, but the individual has to be saved by faith through Christ. And he goes back to Abraham and even says, look, not all of Abraham's descendants were chosen. Ishmael wasn't. Esau wasn't. And back, remember, this is not an isolated incident in Romans. Back in Romans chapter 3, Paul was talking about how you get grace, you get saved by grace through faith alone. And in Romans 4, he backs up that argument by going back to Abraham. And so if Paul is referencing Abraham in Romans 9, we should look at how he referenced Abraham in Romans 4. And it was pointed out in Romans chapter 4 that righteousness was given to Abraham because Abraham believed. It says, Abraham believed and it was given unto him as righteousness. Because Abraham did something, he believed in God and followed through on his belief. Righteousness was accounted to him because of Abraham's faith. Grace comes through faith in Christ. So who has God elected? Whom has God chosen? Who are the chosen? The chosen are those who come to faith in Christ. So is salvation limited? Yes. It's limited to those who come to faith in Christ. God has predestined that those who come to faith in Christ will be saved. That doesn't mean that he creates you or someone who isn't saved to be unsaved. It's that he has predestined that those who come to faith in Christ will be saved. So let's pick up verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel, as the, uh, of Israel as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut short 
in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Seboath had left us a seed, he would have become like Sodom and he would have be been made like Gomorrah. And so he points out that even within Israel, there is a remnant who gets saved, even though there's all these unbelieving, there's a remnant who will get saved because of the prophecies in the book of Hosea. And then Paul gets to this conclusion point in verse 30. He says, what shall we say then after talking about all of this to this Jewish audience, about their attitude, about the Jews and the Gentiles, and whom God has saved, and what election really means? What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? <clears throat> of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So here's this problem as you look through even if you isolate Romans 9 by itself, you see this whole chapter about God's sovereignty and his ability to do what he wants. And that's true. God is sovereign. He is the king of the universe. He's the ruler of all. He created all. He's the creator. The creation can't tell the creator what to do. He is sovereign. And there's this idea of election and predestination throughout this whole thing. But even if you isolate chapter 9 by itself, you get to verse 30 and 31. And it actually says, why? Why haven't they obtained righteousness? Why hasn't some of the people of Israel obtained salvation? Why? Because they did not seek it. So it does require will on the human end. It does require a seeking after God. Now, if you thought I was done, you're wrong because I want to get a whole picture of what's going on here. Scripture is also not isolated. As we've looked at Romans 9 in connection to Romans 3 and 4, yes, it's true. God is capable of predestination. Predestination and election are real, but so is free will. So if you've ever wondered which is true, predestination or free will, then the answer is yes. They're both true. And if you can't comprehend how those two things mix together, that's fine because we don't have an eternal mind like God does. And if we could understand everything about God, that would mean we were as smart as God. And that would be a real problem for the universe if God was only as smart as you and me. But let's take a look at these things because if God really willed it for people to be saved or unsaved, then you have a problem. Because Scripture also says this in 2 Peter 3.9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is Peter talking about this idea that Christ coming back seems to be taking a long time. And there's this attitude of, I thought it was supposed to be soon. And Peter's response is, do not consider 
Do not think the Lord is slack in his promise, as some count slackness, but his long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, let me tell you what the Greek word all means. All. Because God is not willing that any should perish, or, and he wills that all come to repentance. So, how is that possible if how could God possibly will people not to be saved, but also will that all come to repentance? The truth is, what you're looking at is that God's predestination or election is that God has predestined that all those who come to faith in Christ will be saved. God's desire is that as many as possible, even if all could come to repentance, that would be great. But as we know through the words of Jesus, the road is narrow and few will find it. But the road to destruction, the path to destruction is wide and many will find it. But it's still God taking as much time as he needs to make sure as many as possible will be saved and come to repentance. But what about free will? We've talked about it. Is there any instances where this maybe is a little bit more clear in Scripture? Sure. Let's look. In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3, it's discussing a burnt offering and the rules of bringing a burnt offering to God. It says, in his offering, if his offering is a burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting before the Lord. Well, here's the thing about a burnt offering you find out as you read through chapter 1 of Leviticus is that a burnt offering is an offering where all of the parts of the animal are consumed by the fire. It's a complete offering. There's nothing left. You don't get to take any of it back to eat. The priests don't get to eat any of it. It is an all-consuming sacrifice. You give it all to God. This animal that you have without blemish, which should be prized among your flock, you give to God completely over to him. You give up the whole thing, completely consumed. Well, isn't it interesting that later on in this very same book of Romans, Paul says in chapter 12 that we should offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice. We should offer ourselves up as a living sacrifice, which means we should be willing to give God our all like a burnt sacrifice. But how do you give a burnt sacrifice? Of your own free will. That's what it says in Leviticus 1. The word is ratzon in Hebrew, and it means a desire of your own will. You must give a burnt sacrifice of your own will. When you offer yourself up as a sacrifice to Christ, you do it as an all-consuming sacrifice. You give your whole life over to God, and you do it like a burnt sacrifice of your own free will. So what happens. How do these two things exist? God's call, remember Romans 8, and we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who were called according to his purpose. Well, how do these two things work together? How does God call those who will be saved, and how do people have free will to offer themselves up as sacrifice? Well, it's very easy. 
I think everyone in the room probably has one of these devices. It's a little square that you put in your pocket. Guess what happens? When someone calls you, you have to answer. Or you don't connect. Does God call and does God predestine? Yes. Do you have free will? Yes. Does it make sense from an eternal perspective? Yes, maybe not in our minds. But when God calls, in order to connect, you got to answer. This is the gospel. God is calling out from history. Through his scriptures, he's been painting this picture of what the Messiah would look like when he came. He's calling out from pulpits and churches across the world. He's calling out from his children who have been told by Jesus himself to go and make disciples of all nations, to bring people to the gospel. The gospel is to be spread. We are supposed to be the instruments of God that bring the gospel to people who haven't heard it and who need it. God is calling. Are we answering? God is calling you. Have you answered? And as we wrap up 2023 and we look to 2024, remember our mission. No love, share. To know the word of God, or to know God through the revelation of his word. To love others because Christ first loved us. And to share the good news of the gospel as far as God allows us to reach from next door to across the globe. That's our mission because it's what we are called to do as followers of Christ. Will we answer the call? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you are beyond us, that you are bigger than our understanding, that yes, it's true, predestination and election are real. Yes, it's true that free will is absolutely real. Yes, it's true that you call, it's also true that we need to answer. God, help us answer. Help us answer your call. Help us to be individuals who answer your call and make a difference in people's lives around us. And help us to be a church that answers your call, makes a difference in this community and the world. Help us to share your word because we know it and because we love you. God, I pray that you were blessed tonight by what we do here. And I pray that you're blessed further by the worship that we're about to give you in song. In Jesus' name, amen.